think we have it now. I think so, anyway. to walk back there again. Okay, there we go. Finally. Finally up and going. I don't know why it didn't pop up on the uh, main thing, but okay. There we go. Now, I don't know if it's going to YouTube, but I usually get a email that it's going to YouTube. Gosh. Oh, well. We'll get going. If it didn't, we'll go crazy thing computers all right the revelation of Jesus Christ part 26 and verse 17 and 18 I want to spend a little time right here on these two verses I've been looking at the son of man uh, and when I saw him I fell at his feet as dead and he laid his right hand upon me saying unto me fear not I am the first and the last I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. And remember, he's looking at this one like a son of man, but in all of his glory, this many-membered man. When he, we went through this last week. He lays his right hand on you know, John falls at his feet is dead, and he lays his right hand on him, saying, Fear not. And John is overwhelmed by this whole scene here that he's seeing. And remember the the feet of brass. I want to go back over that a little bit. Uh, the feet of brass, brass is, is judgment. And the tabernacle or the temple was a picture of Jesus. And inside of that, uh, in the most holy place, was the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant uh, is type and shadow of the risen Jesus with you remember the Ark of the Mercy Seat with the two cherubim on, on either side. And just to give you a couple verses there, Exodus 25. 
uh, verse 18 and 19, Thou shalt make two cherubims of gold of beaten work. Thou shalt make them two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherubim on one end and cherubim on the other. Even of the mercy seat shall you make two cherubims on the two ends thereof. And the cherubims will stretch forth their, their wings. And I, I just, I want to lay this picture out here. Because I know a lot of people are wanting, uh, you know, to go rebuild the tabernacle and, and all of those things. But remember, nobody saw the ark. I mean, it was behind the veil. Only the high priest one time a year, and he just went in there with blood, sprinkled it on, and any time else it was covered. And even when Jesus rose from the dead, only about 500 saw him and he ascended into the cloud now here John is is seeing him in his glory but in the book of Mark at the resurrection Mark 16 verse 5 and, and 6 they went to the tomb uh, and entering into the sepulcher they saw a young man sitting on the right side clothed <clears throat> in a long white garment and they were frightened and he saith unto them, Be not affrighted, ye seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen, he's not here. Behold the place where they had laid him. Now, do you ever wonder why sometimes the Gospels will say, Okay, they see a young man, well, they saw nobody, they saw a napkin. You know, they, they're all in the same place. But they saw a young man sitting on the right side. Now, Luke's account, now here is uh, Luke, Dr. Luke, in uh, Matthew 24, verses, uh, start at verse 3, and they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. And I always love that verse right there. They entered into the place of death, and he's not there. He kind of says that in this verse. Behold, I'm he that liveth and was dead. You look for me there anymore, you're not going to find me. And it came to pass as they were much perplexed thereabout. Now two men stood by them in shining garments. Now remember the cherubim on either side. Now these two men are standing there. And as they see the two men and, and as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth... They said unto them, now a minute ago they saw one, and now they're afraid they see two. Why seek ye the living among the dead? He's not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. Now, I mean, to me, that's a, such a picture of the mercy seat and the cherubims on either side. And it was the place where they laid the body. And we'll see how these pictures change because now it's the mercy seat, but the same mercy seat became the seat of all authority and all power. And he was worthy to receive that. Why? Because he laid his life down. Because thou was slain. In John... Gives us even another picture, and this comes from Mary, John chapter 20, verse 11. Now remember, 
Mark saw one, and now in Luke they saw two, but Mary, in verse 11, chapter 20, verse 11, Mary stood without at the sepulcher, weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher, and seeth two angels in white, sitting the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. This is the picture of the mercy seat. Jesus is the ark. Uh, that's, what I, that's the point I want to get to. Jesus is the risen, glorified Jesus is the ark. And as I said before, the ark was never seen except by the high priest on the day of atonement when he went in and sprinkled the blood on it. Now, um, so we're looking at the ark here. Now, now think about this. Now, John sees that he falls at his feet as dead. Nobody could see this, this ark. You go back, and even in the uh, old scriptures, I mean, this ark, uh, it, it meant something. You, you remember, uh, they put it out before them when they would go to battle sometimes. They thought they would use it in that way, and then the Philistines took it. They had it about seven months, and, and of course, they sent the mice and the emeralds back. In other words, it was a pain in the butt to them. It gave them all hemorrhoids. And so they, uh, they put it in their temple with their gods, and their god was smashed and fell over on his face, and he fell apart. So they sent it back. And in, in chapter 6 of 1 Samuel, Uh, they, they send the ark back and, and it says, And he smote the men of Bethshemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. Even he smote of the people 50,000 and threescore and ten men. And the people lamented because the Lord had smitten many of the people with a great slaughter. I mean, they look in the ark and it's a great slaughter. Now John looks and, and it slaughters John. And the men of Bethshemesh said, Who was able to stand before this holy Lord God? Now you see what they said. They didn't say who was able to stand before the ark. Because the ark to them was the very presence of God. And they said, Who was able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall he go up from us? Great slaughter. In... Uh, First Chronicles chapter 13. Get over there to that. David is uh, bringing the ark. He wants to bring the ark up to his house. And they're having a big celebration. You guys know the story in verse 8, chapter 13, verse 8. David and all Israel played before God with all their might and with singing and harps and psalteries and trembles and, uh, uh, and cymbals and trumpets. And I, 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 this is why I say this. I, I want to get the picture here that I know there was a time for for cymbals and singing and harps and all of those other things. But this wasn't the time. They were bringing the ark up. 
And, and John, who lays his head on Jesus' breast, now sees him in his glory and he's on his face as dead. And when they came to the threshing floor, the place of separation, the place of judgment of Chidon, Uzzah put forth his hand to hold the ark for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and smote him because he reached out to grab the ark. You see, they, they bring the ark to the house. They got the music right. They got everything right. But they got to the threshing floor, the place of separation. Uzzah puts forth his hand, his strength. And Uzzah died. And David was displeased. And David was afraid. See, the ark, the point I want to get to you is... is the ark brings judgment, and this is a point that we have to face. Jesus, the, the glorified, risen Jesus, brings judgment. There's no two ways around it. Seeing Him in His glory brings judgment. Same thing happened to uh, Peter in, uh, in Matthew Remember these stories in the Old Testament. They, in Matthew 21, I mean, Jesus has just asked them, who do, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Peter gets the revelation, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Upon this rock I build my church. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. He charged the disciples that they shouldn't tell anybody. And in verse 21 of chapter 16, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. And Peter took him. Remember, Uzzah took the ark. And Peter took a hold of Jesus and he grabs a hold of him and began to rebuke Jesus saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. I don't know what happened. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense to me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Now, I've got to explain something here because we're Westerners. And to a Hebrew, <coughs> to, a, to a Jew... Uh, that word there, uh, Satan, was used to signify the depravity and the corruption of nature. Jesus is saying, I can't bear the sight of thee. Thou art under the influence of the corruption of your heart. You're an offense to me. That word offense means you're a stumbling stone. You're, you're a stumbling block. A cause of stumbling. You're, you're trying to make me fail at the very reason that I came here. This was my very reason. And not that, that Peter really could do that, but he was trying to be an offense. Trying to prevent Jesus from the cross. Which was offensive to Jesus because that's why he came. He came to suffer and die for us. To obtain salvation for us. He come that we might have life. We weren't going to have it until he poured out his. Now, in, in Numbers, get back to this ark. 
you know, God, uh, he brought them out of Israel. He brought them out of Egypt, brought Israel out of Egypt. He's brought them to Mount Sinai. Now, they, you know the story of Mount Sinai. Here they are, and they're camped at the base of the mountain. And, and they get the law. I won't go through all the details. They're, they're, they're getting ready to leave the mount. And, and in chapter 9, he, he gives them, he tells them in the 14th day of the first month, um, keep the Passover. And then, then he goes on to tell them if anybody's on a journey or is unclean, they keep it on the 14th day of the second month. He, he you know, they'll, they'll eat the Passover because they didn't, understand everything so he's given them these these instructions I thought while I was reading that it, it says in here if you're defiled by the dead body of a man you got to understand how Jews think I mean they're going down to the sepulcher here I know to them Passover's older but you realize to a Jew they wouldn't they didn't touch dead bodies now here Jesus that's why Jesus had to say to him I'm alive because you couldn't touch a dead body. You, you understand that. And that's all in, in chapter 9 there. They had to keep the Passover. It says with the unleavened bread and with the bitter herbs. And, and, and you know, Jesus comes along and he says, you know, eat my flesh and, and drink my blood and um, drink all of it. All of it. And also he gives instructions for the strangers here to keep the Passover and, and, and all of these, these things. I just thought this good. And, and just imagine the camp here of two or three million people. They, they've built the tabernacle. They've gotten all these instructions. They know where each tribe is going to be. They're like a moving cross going through the wilderness if you look at them from on high. Three tribes on this side, three on this side, three on this side, three on this side. With the tabernacle and the, and, uh, the sons of Korah and everybody in the middle with the tabernacle. But guess what? The ark was out front. They took the ark because wherever the cloud went and the fiery pillar, they... they that ark went out there and they followed the ark which followed the cloud. I just thought it was so, so beautiful. And, and now they're getting ready to start their journey from Mount Sinai. Now remember, he brought them out. They got all of this stuff. They're getting ready to move. For the first time, they're getting ready to move. And you, you can go back and, and look at all of that stuff. They've got everybody in their proper alignment. And I, I, as I was reading this, uh, now here they are, tribes of Israel. But in verse 28, Numbers chapter 10, verse 38, look what, or verse 28, look what he calls them. Thus were the journeyings of the children of Israel according to their armies when they set forward. To their arm, they were armies. They're setting forward in their armies. Now look, just get this picture. Armies, when they set forward, they placed the ark out in front of them. And in verse thirty-five, or let me read verse thirty-four. Uh, 
I'll go back to 33. They departed from the mount of the Lord three days' journey. And the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them in the three days' journey to search out a resting place for them. The ark went ahead of them to search out a resting place. And the cloud of the Lord was upon them by day and when they went out of the camp. And it came to pass when the ark set forward that Moses said, I love this. Here they are and everybody's ready. And, and you know, they, uh, he had made the trumpets, the silver trumpets, and they had sounded the trumpets, and they blow the trumpets, they're getting ready to go, and Moses, the ark is out there, and Moses said, Rise up, Lord, and let thine enemies be scattered, and let them that hate thee flee before thee. I love those words. We're talking about the risen Lord Jesus Christ, rise up, Lord, and let thine enemies, what, be scattered. We're talking judgment here. Who can stand before him? And, and when David wrote in the Psalms, Psalm 68, I'll read you a few of these verses. Psalm 68, let God arise. Let his enemies be scattered. Let them also that hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melteth before the fire. So let the wicked perish at the presence of God. Now, how does the wicked perish? At the presence of God. But let the righteous be glad, let them, let them rejoice before God, yea, let them exceedingly rejoice. Sing unto God, sing praises to His name, extol Him that rideth upon the heavens by His name, Jah, and rejoice before Him. A father of the fatherless and a judge of the widows is God in His holy habitation. And I'm just going to skip down to verse 18 and 19. Thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captivity captive. Thou hast received gifts for men. Yea, for the rebellious also that the Lord God might dwell among them. Blessed be the Lord who daily loadeth us with benefits. Even the God of our salvation. Selah. All these verses we hear in the New Covenant, these goes all the way back to Moses and, and them following the ark. So you, you get the picture of the enthroned Christ, uh, Lord Jesus Christ, marching and marching and marching and marching. And as he, as he comes, his feet is like brass, burning brass, glistening. And his judgment scatters all of his enemies. And those that are with him are called, what, the armies of God. And his enemies do what according to Psalms? They melt like wax and are blown away like wind. Nothing can stop the onward march of the church of Jesus Christ if the church would just press on. When John saw and heard it, back here in the book of Revelation, it was as if he was looking into the face of the sun. Somebody was speaking and the words, he says, was... Uh, the, the words of this one who, who, who sounds like a trumpet, a voice of many water, with such majesty and such beauty and such harmony, but yet so terrible, yet so wonderful. 
And the words they cut me and these same words that cut me defend me. I see as he walked that nothing can stand before that one. He is the wisdom of God. He is the ultimate judge of all men. And John fell at his feet as dead. In this book of Revelation here, we're not dealing with Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, always remember this, Jesus was the name of his humiliation. Even his enemies called him Jesus. Even the demons called him Jesus. And Christ is his title. But God has highly exalted him. And given him a name which is above every name. What? At the Lord Jesus Christ. And no man can say Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Spirit. So for the rest of the time in the New Testament, they um, addressed him as Lord Jesus Christ. Now John is awestruck here. Fell at his feet as dead. And he, he sees the fullness of God. Now this... this People can't get a hold of this. He saw the fullness of God expressed in the glorified man. A human in manhood. I mean, how can this be? And we, we read all, all of the other verses. He's described himself and then he says, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am, not I was, I am. Ever present. I am the ever present. First. First before all first. And before, before the beginning he was. All, all beginnings are because he is the unbeginning beginning. And he's also the last. Everything of the future finds its consummation in him. There's no meaning and purpose to history unless the Lord Jesus Christ is the key. He's the first. He's the last. He's the Lord. That's the great confession of the church. He's Lord. Arise, O Lord. Let thine enemies be scattered. I am he that liveth and was dead. I mean, this book, again, it's an interpretation of history in the light of the first and the last. It says this whole thing sums up in a living person, and he was dead, but he's alive. Uh, behold, he's alive forevermore. Behold, I, I, I want to tell people, behold, pay attention. Look, look with awe, look with wonder. Don't glance at it. And it says, it says here something, and I, I didn't want to skip over this part. And he has the keys of hell and of death. Keys of hell and of death. I want to go get you a story here. Out of Isaiah. Chapter 22. Isaiah the prophet. And I know... I had to go back and look at this because, you know, once you, you read something 20 times, you miss it. And you, then it jumps out at you. Uh, I'm going to start in verse 15. Thus saith the Lord God of hosts, 
Go get thee into this treasure, even unto Shibna, which is over the house, and say. Now, Shibna, he's over the house. Now, he's not the king. He's a servant in the house, but he's, he's, he's the scribe, the treasurer. You know, he's, he's a big to-do, but he's not the king. He's over the house. Now, God tells Isaiah to go get thee to the uh, treasure of the house. Now, you'll find Shibna here working under King Hezekiah. Go to thee to this treasure, even to Sheba, which is over the house, and say, I want you, I mean, specifically, I want you to go speak to Shibna. Now, uh, you, you got to get this picture. And, it, and, of course, in the King James here. What hast thou here? He's asked in Shibna, what hast thou here? And whom hast thou here that thou hast hewn out, hewn thee out a sepulcher here, as he that heweth him out a sepulcher on high, and that, Grave of the habitation for himself in a rock. Without knowing the backstory, but I'm, I'm going to tell you here, you know how the Hebrews were. They went and hewn them out, and the whole families were, would be buried together. Well, they also had their, uh, their picks, and kings would be buried high on the mountain. And the Lower servants would be down here. Now, Shibna had taken it upon himself to go high on the mountain up here where King David and all these other people had been buried. And he's hewing him out of place. So the prophet is, is going to him and says, Why have you went, your place was down here, and now you've took it upon yourself to go up here with the kings and... Because you remember Sunday and the king of kings and we're talking about he had promised to David there would be one set on his throne. Shibna takes it upon himself. He's digging out a tomb. And, and, and to the Hebrews, he's digging out a tomb not just for him, for him and his whole family in the high places where the kings are buried, where David's buried. I mean, this is arrogant. I mean, he's thinking he's going to rest among the kings. Now look at the rebuke. I told you we, we got to view this and he, he's the ultimate judge. Behold, verse 17, Behold, the Lord will carry thee away with a mighty captivity and will surely cover thee. Bury you. Carry you away. I mean, this, this has some violence in it. I want you to get a hold of that. He will surely, well, here's the word, verse 18. He will surely violently turn and toss thee like a ball into a large country. There shalt thou die. And there the chariots of the glory shall be the shame of the Lord's house. Now, this is before they go into Babylonian captivity. But uh, you, you'll get the full picture here in a minute. And I will drive thee from thy station and from thy state shall he pull thee down. You know, as when I read these things, uh, I go back, I, I go back to Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast their 
cast away their cords from us. You know, we, we don't want any of that. And he's taking it upon himself. I'll be the king. I'll hew it out my own and I'll raise my whole family if I'm going to do this myself. And the Lord is telling him through Isaiah, he's cast away like a ball violently. You'll be done away. Now, verse 20. Now, remember, you got Shebna here. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. In that day, Eliakim. He's speaking to Shebna, Shebna, who's over the house. Let me... Let me just go on and read this and we'll come back. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle. And I will commit thy government into his hand and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder. So he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place, and he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. They shall hang upon him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the issue, all the vessels of small quantity from the vessels of cups, even to all the vessels of flagons. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall the nail that is fastened in the sure place be removed and be cut down and, and fall, and the burden that was upon it shall be cut off, for the Lord has spoken it. I know you guys have heard the nail in the sure place a million times. But it brought me to it because here Jesus, uh, the Son of Man, says, I have the keys. Started looking at keys, and there's a key of David here. It shall come to pass, he says, in, in that day, the day of the Lord, that I will call my servant. I will call my servant. Man, what does that bring us to? I mean, wasn't this Jesus? I mean, Jesus made himself of no reputation. And took upon himself the form of a servant. In that day, I will call my servant, Eliakim. You know what Eliakim's name means? It means the God of raising. Son of Hilkiah. It means the portion of Jah. We just read Jah in Psalm 68. Jehovah. His portion. He's called the servant of Jehovah as one who was already a servant of God in his own heart and in his, in his conduct. So what we have here, we've got a transfer of office because who's in charge right now? Who's over the house? Shibna. And he tells Shibna, I'm taking you away and I'm going to call my servant Eliakim. There's a transfer of office. We see this all through the scripture. Uh, there, uh, uh, this is where Paul got a hold of this in 2 Corinthians 3. From glory 
to glory. There was a glory of the old, but it failed in comparison to the glory of the new. And, and in this, in this uh, transfer of office, you, you get these little pictures here. You remember when Elijah uh, is about to pass on his office to Elijah? You remember what he did? He put his mantle upon him. He put his mantle upon him. Clothed him. I mean, if we go back now uh, in Revelation... Now, now, let me read right here, verse 21. And I will clothe him with thy robe, and strengthen him with thy girdle. And I will commit thy government into his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one likened to a son of man clothed with a garment down to the foot. And gird about the paps with a golden girdle, his head and his hairs like wool, white as snow, eyes flame of fire. Same thing right here. Same thing. Now look what it says right here. And I will commit thy government into his hand. Now in the book of Revelation, what did, what did he see in his hand? He had seven stars in his hand, which is the seven spirits of God that he had in his hand. Now this government here shows us how very closely the office that was forfeited by Shibna was connected with that of the king. Uh, in Isaiah 9 chapter 6, he's called, this, this one is called everlasting father. And it says here, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And of course in verse 22. And the key of the house of David. And we're going to look at this more as we get on into Revelation. Because we'll, we'll see it in the, in the churches. The key of the house of David. Now the key here signifies the power of key. Uh, and notice the key is not given into Eliakim's hand. But it's placed on his shoulder. You remember what it said, the government shall be upon his shoulders. Now this key was properly handled by the king because in Revelation 3, 7, uh, let me go over there and get that one. Revelation 3, 7. And unto the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that opened... And none shuts and shuts and no man opens. That's what he says right here. I will lay upon his shoulder so he shall open and none shut and he shall shut and none shall open. Now, we'll get into more details, but I just want you to get this. Now, remember Shibna had power or, or he, he worked in the house. It was over the house. So the, the power of the key here consists not only in the supervision of the royal chambers because he's there in the house of the king. But also in the decision uh, who was and who was not to be received into the king's service. He's the guy that says you can come in, you can't come in. You, you get this. 
And he says here in verse 23, I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place. Now, that word nail there, I know we get a picture of the cross, and, and that's, that's okay, but I want you to get this picture here in Isaiah the, uh, about these people. Well, um, this word nail meant a, a tent peg. That's what it meant. And it also had a general designation for uh, national rulers. You can look that up in Zechariah chapter 10 and verse 4. Uh, who they stand in the same relation uh, to the nation as a tent peg. To the tent, which, to the tent which it holds firmly upright. Right? It's that, it's that solid place that, that roots it and holds it upright. And, but as the tent peg here is, it, it says, I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place, and he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. So as the tent peg is rammed into the ground, the, the figure is changed. Now it becomes a seat of honor. Becomes a, a, a seat of honor. So Eliakim would be an honor to his previously undistinguished family now think about this now now jesus you know you get this picture of jesus what did they say about his family one good thing comes out of nazareth i mean they're understanding they have no clout now shibna here he's in the house he's got some clout he's the head over the clout i mean he's he's the head over the house he says who comes in and who stays out. Shibna does. And God says, I'm taking you out. I'm going to raise up my servant. And he will open and none will shut. And he'll shut and none will open. And I'm going to make him the honor of the house. You see this change here. And, and it says, And he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's House, the members of his family would sit upon his chair, upon his peg for the purpose of raising themselves up to honor. A, a few minutes ago, they have no honor, and now they're in the place of honor. And now it's raised even higher. Same word, and they shall hang upon him all the glory of the Father's house. So it's raised even higher, this, this nail, this peg, here in verse 24. In other words, all the glory of the family hangs on him. Do you, do you get that? All the glory of the family hangs on him. They shall hang upon him all the glory of, the, of his father's house. I mean, what do they say about Jesus? In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And then it says, the offspring... And the issue, all the vessels of small quantity, from the vessels of cups, even to the vessels of the flagons. What he's saying here, because remember they're poetic in the way they put, uh, uh, give us these pictures. He says, look at his family, the offspring, the offshoots. Look at him. The issue, uh, that meant the outcast. The outcast, the vessels of small quantity, the least, 
the vessels of the cups, I mean, these were the uh, vessels used by the priest uh, for, for the blood and the, the flagons and for the mixing of wine and leather bottles. Just common use. I mean, these, these are nothing. But these, his family, because of Elikim, his whole family is going to be brought into glory and prominence. And all the glory of the whole family is going to hang on the one. You know, in my, I just get this... Uh, I get this picture in my head sometimes because, you know, people will, well, they will tell you who they know. Or they'll say, oh, people go around with an autograph book and they'll say, oh, you know, I met John Wayne one time and I met Elvis Presley and, or so-and-so's kin to so-and-so. And they're a big, big wig. And, and so you get the picture. But I want you to think about who we have that all the glory of our whole family hangs on. I mean, I love how Jesus said, you, you thought Solomon was something, one greater than Solomon that was here. I mean, because these people say, well, we have Abraham to our father. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. Abraham desired to see my day, and he saw it and rejoiced in it. I mean, the, this whole misfit, outcast, unknown family, unknown family. I mean, when I read this, it just did me so good because I, I just think, you know, everybody, they got names and they got titles and all of this. And he's taken that whole order away. Shibna, you had your day. But now the glory of this other family is all going to hang on him. And they're all going to, uh, it's all going to be fastened upon Eliakim. And they're going to climb through him to glory. The glory that he gives us. Now it says in verse 25, in that day, the same day, in that day that he glorifies Eliakim, in the same day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall the nail that is fastened in the sure place be removed and be cut down and fall, and the burden that was upon it shall be cut off, for the Lord has spoken it. You see, he's referring back to Shibna. And he says, as I... Raise Shibna up. I'm removing you. Now that's hard. This nail in verse 25 is Shibna. He's being removed. He's being replaced. What do we have here, guys? This is why it was so hard. We've got to change the priesthood. How do I know it? Because they were servants. And what did the priests do? They served in the house. So here they are. This is a picture of the change of the priesthood. We're going from the priesthood of Aaron and Levi to the, a new order of priesthood where they're all priests, even the misfits and the offshoots and the, and the little ones with no quality and all of this other stuff. They're all because of the glory of Eliakim who God has raised up. Now before, now, now think about this. Those that were dependent upon uh, Shibna. Because he had a whole network of people over here. He could let, let you in and keep you out. And, and he could, you know, favors to these people over here and help them out. And, and all of those, I mean, for his family, his friends, though he, those that he had raised by his influence and, and authority, those that he supported, all of them would fall with him. Just like Haman, you remember Haman? People forget Haman didn't only hang. Haman had ten sons, and they all hung with him. 
And I thought about this when I went back. You know, Jesus wept over the house of Jerusalem. The house of Jerusalem. Now, I mean, who's the servant of the house of Jerusalem? Who's over the house? I go back and I read Hebrews and I find out the one, as Moses was faithful over his house, here's Jesus, here's the servant. He's, because he's the, all of it. He's not only the king, but he's the servant too. We see that in Mark. He wept over the house because that house had to be torn down. And all that depended on that house, all that depended on the old covenant would be left desolate. All their influence is gone. I'm telling you, you might be the high priest and the best one there is. And, but when you have no more altar, what are you going to do? When your whole temple is torn down, what are you going to do? You've got nothing. The reason it was so hard, because they wouldn't come unto him. And he gives them warning over and over. And that's why Paul says, from glory to glory. We see the, the glory of the latter house, how it exceeds the glory of the former. Over and over and over. And the key of David, key of the house of David, and Jesus, he, or this, this son of man, Jesus raised in, in full glory with his whole body uh, raised, has the keys of hell and of death. And this signifies the power and authority over life, death, and the grave. Now I want to talk to you about something here. This is uh, what they call a rabbinical, rabbinical form of speech. The, the word hell, we're going to look at this here in a minute. Uh, here is the word Hades, which is the grave or the place of the unknown, the place of fear. Now, a key, we'll look at this more later, but it's, it's an emblem of power and authority. Christ can both save and destroy. He can kill and make alive. Now, people don't, they don't want to hear that, this little meek and mild Jesus and all this other stuff. But what did he say? Arise, let thine enemies be scattered. Let them melt like wax what is that and and the grave to a hebrew uh, i want you to think about this i mean here's old job and uh we find job here job chapter 10 job and his misery this kind of gives you a good picture of what they thought in verse 18. Wherefore then hast thou brought me forth of the womb? Oh, that I had given up the ghost and no eye had seen me. I should have been as though I had not been. I should have been carried from the womb to the grave. Are not my days few? Cease then and let me alone that I may take comfort a little. Before I go whence I shall not return, even to the land of darkness. And the shadow of death, a land of darkness, as darkness itself and of the shadow of death without any order. And where the light is darkness, without any order. 
where the light is darkness. And now Jesus says he holds the keys, the power and authority over this where there was no order. Now, if you remember, uh, there used to be a king of the land in uh, Romans 5.21, and his name was Death. That as sin reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Death reigned. You can go on. I mean, you can read all through uh, Romans 5. Death reigned. You know, you know what reigned is? Uh, I mean, it was the ruler. Death reigned. And now Jesus is standing here with his right hand on John saying, Fear not. And then he says, I have the keys of hell and of death. Now, there are three. Well, there's one word in the Hebrew for hell and it's the word Sheol and to the Hebrews it meant the state of the dead or the realm of the dead or the place of the dead the same thing we just read in in Job without order where the where the light is darkness talking about the grave in Isaiah when it says hell hath enlarged itself uh, he was talking about there was a famine in the city. A lot of people was dying, so they just dug a great big pit, uh, uh, what we would call a mass grave, and buried the people there in the grave. So it was hell hath enlarged itself. They just they had to dig a big grave to put everybody in. Now, in the Greek, there's three words for hell. And I hope as we go through this book of Revelation, you'll see this. Now, Gehenna is one of those words. Now, on the King James, it's just hell. They use them throughout, so you've got to look to see which one they're using. But Gehenna is referring to the Valley of Hinnon or Gehenna. Now, those who are pictured as going into Gehenna are not the sinners of the world. Where was Gehenna at? Uh, Gehenna was the city dump of Jerusalem, which was the holy city. It was right out, right outside of the city, where every unclean and unnecessary thing was burned and where it was consumed. So Gehenna wasn't a place for the sinners of the world. It was a place of the dump for God's people. Now you remember, uh, Malachi. Verse 2, chapter 3, verse 2. But who may abide the day of his coming? Who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire, a fuller's soap. He shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Now how are they purified? Fire. So Gehenna stands as a type of the place or the process of the purification of God's people. It's referred to in the Old Testament by the name of Tophet, T-O-P-H-E-T. And it was located in Hinnom, 
And it was a place where many sacrifices were made and the dead bodies were burned. You remember when they made their kids pass through the fire? That's what they did. They passed through the, through the valley of Hinnom. Gehinnom. Now, there's another. I got to go uh, get this word. Uh, it's called uh, Tartaru or Tartarus. And it is used in. Second Peter, chapter 2, verse 4. For if God spare not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell. That's the word, Tartaro or Tartarus, I can't say Greek. And delivered them unto chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. God spare not the angels that sin. What's an angel? Messenger. They carry a message. They sin. Cast them down to hell and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Spare not the old world but save Noah. But we get this same idea here in Jude. Verse 6. And the angels which kept not their first estate... But left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness into the judgment of the great day, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner. The whole thought of this word Tartaro or Tartarus is of restraint, right? Confinement, prison. A condition in which the apostates are held for a specific period of time. In the same manner is when somebody's doing something really bad, we just don't take them to court right away. They're held in jail until the time of their court case, right? No bonds here. They're held in jail until the day of judgment. We just read that twice. So the Tartaro... Is not the judgment itself, but it's the state or, or the condition in which the persons are held with no escape, no bond, until the day of judgment. They're held there. These are these apostates. I've seen men today who are apostates. They've turned from the truth. They use their gifts for their own advantage, making merchandise of God's people. They've perverted the ways of the Lord, turned the truth of God into a lie, and have sunk into the blinding darkness and delusion. They've been captivated by the flesh, chained in the snare of the devil. You remember, we're warned about these things. I mean, people forget these things in the Scripture, how we're warned against them, how you can be caught in the snare. Now, when you're caught in the snare, an animal, it's not going anywhere unless it chews his leg off. It's caught. This, this word. So, they're caught in the snare of the devil and they continue going through the motions of their ministry, unable to escape from the devilish trap which they've fallen. And they're held there in their own personal Tartarus, reserved until the day of judgment. There's another word for hell, and it's Hades, or hell. It's the unknown, the word that we started out with. 
the it means to you know how you perceive something it it has the the a or the un in it to unperceive the unseen the unseen world the unknown world and there's both the positive and negative aspects here it it's a it's a place it's it's a realm you know a lot of people ask you where's hell at it's, it's got to be a place it's like heaven but but that's why it's so hard to to get them uh, more to understand it. But I'm going to say this word here. It, it's a state or a condition just like heaven. I mean, do you really believe that we're seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus at the very moment? Now, if I'm to believe the Scriptures, the Scripture says we're seated in heaven. And we've been delivered from the chains of darkness and, and brought into His marvelous light. Now, is that true? Do I feel like it? it? Does that mean this place is heaven? Because we get it in our minds that heaven is, is uh, you know, everything is beautiful and tropical and and calm waters and all that that stuff and but it's a state or condition now in its negative application the inner state of depravity the perverted desire the burning lust you know when when he said better to marry than to burn and people think oh my god you know that's premarital sex and if you have that you're you're going to burn in hell he was talking about the lust better to be married than to burn with desire Burning lust uh, and, and ambition, mental anguish, despair. And because it's so twisted and warped, it can't obtain lasting fulfillment. So they're being tormented by the, by the fires of its own unsatisfied passions. Now I know when I say these things, but you know, because people want a place for bad people to go. It's almost like you can't have church unless you dig a hole and put bad people in the hole and, the, and burn them forever just like you can't have you got to have a heaven over there and a hell over here heaven to gain a hell to gain. you know you go through all that stuff and and this whole uh life here is god has proven you whether you're going to make the right choice to go to heaven or you're going to all that it's all that's nonsense all that's nonsense Heaven and hell are both states of the soul rather, rather than the body. Uh, I, and I'm telling you, and you guys, and you know when, when I say these things, people will say, and I'm not done with this, people will say, oh, well, what he's saying is he doesn't believe in hell. Well, I haven't finished yet. Because immediately people think, oh, well, you're letting people off the hook. I'm talking about the great judge of all men, the ultimate judge of all men, and I make no mistake about it. Nobody gets off the hook. Nobody. Now, I'm not saying that we have to pay for sin. That was done at the cross. I'm talking heaven or hell here. Uh, Heaven and hell may dwell in the same home, sit at the same table, but in between them, there's a great gulf fixed. We see that in Luke, Luke 16. I know people try to literalize everything, but in this book, you, you can't do it. And, and I'll give you a couple of examples here. A home where uh, this, uh, let's say, a, 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 a young man, a, a 
a boy. He goes wrong and he bears in him a, a guilty secret that he can't tell the rest. It's so atrocious. He can't tell anybody. And, and yet, he's got to keep company with his guilty, tortured self. No matter where he goes, he can't get away from his own self. And every time that boy hears the, the laughter and the joy of his family rejoicing in the Lord, the fires of hell are burning more in his heart. Every time he receives uh, his father's blessing or listens to his mother and their maternal love, speaking of him in love and bragging on him, he knows that between them and him, there's a great gulf fixed and he is He's caught in it and there's no escaping. You guys know what I'm talking about. You've seen it. To the sinner abiding in the sin, even the language of love is torture hell to him. They cannot. Have you ever seen people that just, they will not receive love. And the more you try to love them, the, yeah, the worse it gets. Now, why is that? It's the very own torture of the soul. And, and why did it start out? Something went wrong. They did something wrong. or they, They've got this guilt and they're, they're kept in these chains. They're bound. They're in, they're in hell, this unknown in its realm. That's why the fire has to be there to, to burn that up. And I'll, I'll tell you what. In, we read this uh, a little bit of it on Sunday, but in Matthew you remember when he's talking to them in uh, Matthew 41, the men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas and behold, a greater than Jonas is here shall rise up in judgment. That's the judgment. It's not that we sit around and we look at that generation. and I mean, Jesus said they're condemned already. Remember that. He said there, he didn't come into the world to judge the world. The, ju the world was already judged. But then he says, the men of Nineveh rise up in judgment of this generation. What was that? Were those people. And what, what happens is, just like Shimna, he thought he had it. And can you imagine the hell he goes through when he sees this little nobody, Elikim, and his whole family are offshoots and nothings, and they didn't know nobody, they had no influence, and now all the glory of the king is placed upon him, and every he Elikim and none of Elikim's family had to say a word. Every time he saw him, it was hell to him. And it was the same way with with us, because now those people of the old covenant, even the people today, can look on us and see they have missed the very gift of Jesus himself because they won't receive him who the whole book was talking about. And we've got it and we laugh and we joy and we rest in their very king whom they refused. That's judgment to them. Now let me give you another example. you got a, uh, an angry uh, unhappy man here and this unhappy man has power to inflict suffering on those that are weaker than him and he's he's lived this kind of life with these this devilish life and these crazy ideas and they've grown stronger and stronger as he's got older and he has power to oppress and abuse and crush 
the beautiful woman that he's with, his wife, whose very presence and purity of character are a rebuke to him. And the better she is to him, the fiercer seems to burn his anger and hostility because he knows he's not worthy of such devotion. And he doesn't repent, but he suffers remorse, inward hate. And between the two is a great gulf. And the fires of hell are burning in that man's experience. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. And you know, people go through this all the time. I'm not worthy. It's why they, they do the church stuff all the time. I'm not worthy. And the fires of hell just burning. This, the, the reason you and I are, are worthy is because of Elikim, the one God has raised up. It's got nothing to do with anything I did. The offshoots, the, the outcast, all of that have been glorified because of what he done. You, you can meet with the very fires of hell kindled by the pollution and corruption and wickedness on which the soul is fed and, and, and you can meet it in Walmarts and in, in the palace and in Congress and in businesses and, and, and never even know it. You can, you can pass right by the, hell, the fires of hell and you don't even know it. But guess what? Uh, everything is naked and open uh, to, to him. He knows. He sees all. And I want to tell you what, nothing but the tender mercies and power of the blood of the Lamb can save us from what we are in that great day of revelation, whether it be on this side of the grave or the other side of the grave. That's what I say, if you're in hell on the other side of the grave, you've began over here. Does that make sense? It's not something you go to, you're just continuing on. We'll talk about this more because I don't want to keep you all night. And when our delusions are gone, when the, when the smoke clears, we find ourselves in our heaven or our hell. We may eat, drink, and be merry. We may not pay attention. We may suppress the voice that is within us, but someday that voice awakens and speaks and it will be heard. And the, and the awakening shall lead to brokenness and repentance. You remember Jesus said, either you fall on the stone, either you hear the, or, or the stone falls on you. Either way, you're either crushed to powder or you're broken. Either way, you're broken. Either way. Now, nature is a mirror of the unseen world. Every form of death, disease, Decay, failure, pain, every fruitless seed, each ruined life is a shadow of hell. And of the working of that foul spirit which destroys and mars God's handiwork. Just as all the beauty, purity, harmony, enduring love is the reflection of heaven. Now, He's got the keys here. Back in Revelation, he's got the keys. You remember, John, the baptizer, said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away sin of the world. Now here's Jesus in his flawless life, which was followed by a decisive death. 
to a cross to endure incomparable suffering, sufferings that's beyond our imagination. We would be fruitless to even try to, we have no idea. He, we can't bear our own sin. He bore the sin of the world. And there he is, this, this Jesus, hanging naked, beaten, beyond, marred, beyond uh, any recognition, crown of thorns, he's in agony. Darkness is upon the face of the earth. I mean, the, the earthquake has happened, the rocks are rent, darkness has came on, and there he is. And God has placed on him the sin of man. Christ has made his soul an offering for sin. The sin of the world was imputed to him. And the ways of God's judgment were released upon him. Now what did men see? The men, the onlookers. What did they see when they looked at that? They, they see a, a man here hanging limp on a cross. He's dead. Every bone out of joint, the scripture says. Not broken, but out of joint. The pain of it. You ever dislocated your finger? The, every bone. His shoulders and hips are out of joint. A swollen tongue protruding out of his mouth from his burning lips that cried, it is finished. That's what they saw. They took him down from the cross, but they didn't realize that this Jesus went into hell. Thou shalt not leave thy soul in hell. The scripture says he went into hell. And what did he do? I'm giving you the fast version. He destroyed him that had the power of death, which is who? The devil. Stripped it. And, and he liberated the captives there that were there. And I'm going to tell you what. I know people, uh, they may not get this, but all of those were in the grave. with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Samuel and David. And all of them were in the grave. They were, there. They were captive to it. Death reigned, the scripture says. Death reigned. But, uh, but John has saw a new king here. He destroyed him, stripped it. He, he led captivity captives. He set the captives free, the, those that were captive to death and hell here. I, I love the scriptures in, in Judges when, when uh, they, they said, oh, uh, let, me, let me go give it to you here real quick. In, in Judges uh, 16. Here they're laying wait uh, for... Uh, Samson, and it was told the Gizites, saying, Samson has come hither. They comes to me and, and laid wait for him all night in the gate of the city. They were quiet all night, saying, in the morning when it's day, we'll kill him. And I could just see them all saying, we got him. We got the stone rolled up there. We got it sealed. We got guards. We've got him. We've got him. We have to kill the king of glory. We've got him. Look at him. And Samson laid on midnight. And arose at midnight. And when he arose, he took the doors of the gate of the city. And the two posts and went away with them, bar and all, and put them upon his shoulders, carried them up to the top of the hill that's before Hebron. Went up to the top of the hill and said, look here, fellas. I mean, people are looking for a hero. You know, you, you, right now in the movies, all the movies are about these heroes. You know, Spider-Man and Superman and all. You know, the kids are enamored with but the greatest hero of all. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I mean, there was a great battle here. I, w- I want you to get this picture of, the, of this great battle with death and hell and Satan. They all raged at him. You know, uh, when Napoleon was wiping out everybody in Europe, Wellington from England had to, had to go and, and fight, and they met at Waterloo. And the people, you know, they had to cross that uh, channel, the English Channel, and it's foggy and all of that stuff. And they're waiting because they're just waiting. If Wellington loses, man, Napoleon's coming to England. He's going to wipe them out, and they're waiting. And, and finally, uh, they, they see across the channel, the ship has given them the, you know, how they, they use the, the lanterns to give the Morse code. And, and the word, the fog lifted, and the words came to them, Wellington defeated and the fog had set back in. They were in despair. I mean, this is what happened. Uh, this is what happened with Jesus. There he, he is on the cross. And, and they're mocking him. Uh, Come down if you be the Son of God. And every moment he doesn't move. And his life is just oozing out of him. Hour after hour after hour. Until finally he gave up the ghost. Looks like he's defeated. Wellington defeated. Word goes back. Christ defeated, Jesus defeated, look, he's hanging limp on the cross. I mean, life went out of the hearts of the disciples. Joy was gone from the earth, darkness, it was all black, hopeless, meaningless, it's all done. But you know, they kept waiting down there at that beach at the English Channel. And when the fog lifted again, the words came again, Wellington defeated, and they finally got the last word, enemy. And on the third day, Jesus defeated death, he defeated hell, he defeated Satan, and he has the keys. Death couldn't hold its prey anymore. Hell couldn't hold its prey anymore. And the scripture's being fulfilled. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? And in his nail-pierced hand, he holds the victory, the keys of hell and of death. And I will quit with that. Amen.